Three words. They're ordinary. They're common. They can be hard to say. They can be somewhat easy to say. They can make us feel in control. They could also reveal that we are completely out of control. They require humility. Three words. What are they? I don't know. I don't know. Show of hands, who has said this phrase at some point? Everyone. When it comes to some of the whys of this life, particularly the why did this terrible thing happen, we are sometimes forced to say, I don't know. And that's challenging, isn't it? It's challenging. We want control. We want to know. We're control freaks. We want all the answers to all of the I don't knows of this life. But those answers may never come, at least not in the shape and size that we desire. And that leaves us in a whirlwind. It leaves us unable to see clearly, unable to bring into focus truth and our experience, faith and doubt. As we'll see today, this is where Job is. He's in the whirlwind of suffering. So please turn with me in your Bible to the book of Job. If you go to the middle of your Bible, to the Psalms, then hang a left, you will safely arrive at the book of Job. If you do not have a Bible this morning, you could pull one out from under a chair near you. It's going to be on page 389. This morning, we're going to continue in our occasional sermon series through this book. And just to briefly catch us up in the first message that happened last month, we looked at Job's context. We looked at the prologue, the introduction there in chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 10. And in that passage, we looked at the setting and sainthood of Job, as well as his sifting and suffering, the undeserved suffering that came upon him. And in that passage, above all, we learned that Job is primarily a book about God, primarily. And in God's world, undeserved suffering is meant to test our faith and point us to the cross of Christ. Ultimately, we're going to have no clue what to do with the book of Job if we don't understand Jesus, the one who was the suffering servant who suffered undeserved suffering for us, for sinners like us. And today we're going to be looking at Job's conversations in chapter 2, verse 11, through chapter 42, verse 6. We're not going to be able to read every word of these chapters this morning, but you'll be helped to keep your Bible open to them. Uh, And here's why I'm preaching a passage this big. This is wisdom literature, brothers and sisters. And it's, it's meant to be read together, all together. This section is conversational poetry that is meant to be seen as one cohesive whole. Therefore, we're going to dive into it this morning. So please follow along as I read the setup 
of Job's conversations here in chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and to comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him. For they saw that his suffering was very great. This is God's word to the church. Thanks be to God. Let's say that together. Thanks be to God. Amen. I'm going to pray and then we'll walk through the rest of our passage today. Father, we ask that you would send your spirit now to turn the lights on in our dim hearts and minds. We ask that you would increase our faith, cause us to see the glory of Jesus this morning. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, you who is our rock and our redeemer. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, to guide our time this morning, here's the big idea of this this whole passage. Here it is. In the whirlwind of suffering, we learn to lament, limp with friends, and listen to and truly see God. In the whirlwind of suffering, we learn to lament. We see this in chapter 3. We learn to limp with friends. We see this in chapter 4 through 37. And then we learn to listen to and truly see God. Chapter 38 through 42, verse 6. So point one. In the whirlwind of suffering, we learn to lament. Imagine with me for just a moment. You're on a path on a warm spring day. The sun is out and there's beauty all around you. And as you're walking... The worst storm of your life comes upon you on the path. You're disoriented. The wind and rain are coming down brutally. You keep falling. Your body is battered and bruised. Finally, you're forced just to sit and wait it out. Well, this is what has happened figuratively and spiritually to Job. Job is an upright man who's blameless, God-fearing. He's righteous. He's walking along the path of faith, and bam, a whirlwind of unthinkable, undeserved suffering comes upon him. He's asking why. He doesn't know why. It's dark. Everything has been stripped from him, and God is completely silent. As we just read a moment ago in those few verses, the three friends of Job come to him. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, three men who a friend of mine pointed out, sound, their names sound like dwarves from Lord of the Rings. Well, they hear the evil, the tragedy that has come upon Job, and they work together to come to him, to comfort him, to show sympathy toward him, to sit in the darkness of the whirlwind with him, and to weep with him. 
And that's what they do. But when they arrive, they can barely recognize him. Remember, Satan was permitted to afflict Job with sores from his head to his toe. And Job has been scraping himself with a piece of broken pottery. He's sitting in a pile of ashes. Job is barely recognizable to those who know him well. Can you imagine? You can feel the weight of of Job's condition here. His loss, his suffering, his grief. Job is in a storm and his his friends have come to sit with him and weep and speak. We're going to come back to those friends in just a moment. But after seven days, Job breaks the silence with one of the most dreadful prayers of lament in all of Scripture there in chapter 3. Look there with me. Let's read verses 1 through 5. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born. And the night that said, A man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the the blackness of the day terrify it. Now go down to verse 7. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Now verses 20 through 26. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul? Who long for death, but it comes not. Dig for it more than for hidden treasures who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden? Whom God has hedged in. For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. These are the words of lament, birthed out of suffering. The most helpful definition I've come across of lament is this. Lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust and praise of God. Lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust and praise of God. And one of the reasons we have the book of Job in our Bible is to give us the words of grief, the words of lament. And you may be thinking after hearing these words from Job, after hearing that he desires to die and that he is enduring, verse 26, the fold pain of no ease, no quiet, no rest, only trouble. You may be thinking, oh, that sounds an awful lot like grumbling, Job. Oh, that... I can't even imagine speaking to God like that. Maybe, maybe you're thinking, I've never actually felt this way. I don't understand this. Or maybe you think, wow, this is, this is me. This is me. I felt this way and I feel this way even now. If you're thinking or feeling any of this, you're in good company in this room. And if you have felt or are feeling the desire to die or even the desire to commit suicide, or if you know someone who is desiring to commit suicide, then we want to help find counseling for you. 
we want to pray with you today after the service. We also want to, to give you the hotline for, for suicide, the suicide hotline, 1-800-273-8255. Write that number down and save it. Well, there's only one way to learn how to lament like this, like Job does here, and it is through pain on the pilgrimage of faith through suffering. And whether you were in a season of suffering to any degree or not, it is good to learn from Job here. It would be wise for you to store these words away for the whirlwinds of suffering, big or small, that have that have come or will come in this life. There was a man named William Cooper who learned to lament at an early age. He was born in 1731. At the age of six, his mother died. He began to struggle with deep depression. Later in his life, he pursued being a lawyer. And right before he became a full-fledged lawyer, he had a tragic mental breakdown and was put in an asylum. It was in the asylum that Cooper, by God's grace, became a believer. And he began to slowly but surely heal from his struggles with mental illness and deep depression. But shortly after he got out of asylum, his brother passed away and went right back down, right back into depression. But from all that pain and all of that depression and all of that sorrow, Cooper wrote lament poetry, hymns of lament. One of them is called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Recommend looking for that song later today for the lyrics. He also wrote a hymn that we sing here, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. He wrote 67 other hymns. It's amazing. That have blessed the church and has helped the church, helped Christians Lament well in this life. Brothers and sisters, may we learn to lament in a Job-like way, in a Cooper-like way, not, not being quick to plaster over the dark parts of our lives with a little happy face sticker, but learning to dwell with trust in God and hope in God in the midst of lament. Well, returning to that stormy path that lamenting Job is on in the whirlwind of I don't knows that have come upon him, of the undeserved suffering that has come upon him, his friends come and try to help him along. And that brings us to point two. In the whirlwind of suffering, we learn to limp with friends. We see this in chapters 4 through 37. Job's friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, attempt to limp with him on the path of faith. But as we're going to find out, not only do they not know how to lament with Job, they attempt to fix the problem of suffering for Job. One pastor says that sufferers attract fixers the way roadkill attracts vultures. Isn't that true? It's true, it's true. Well, as these friends attempt to fix Job, they offer misguided and confusing counsel that adds insult to injury. And these conversations come to us in the chapters, in these chapters, in three rounds. 
where we see on repeat, Eliphaz speak, and then Job respond. Bildad speak, and then Job respond. Zophar speak, and then Job respond. And then a young man named Elihu steps up to the plate and runs into the whirlwind with Job, and we're going to hear more on him in a little bit. Over and over and over, the blind are leading the blind. Now, the words of this section are deep and rich, and it would be very easy for us to get bogged down in the density of these conversations and to even overanalyze the many words spoken and the details within them. And so what I wish to do today is to briefly offer a snapshot of each one's counsel, then offer a snapshot of Job's response to both his friends and to God, and then bring it all together to the pavement of our lives and offer a handful of lessons that we can learn as a church. Uh, Please don't feel the need to turn to every one of these verses. It will be a little fatiguing. I would even encourage for you to just listen to them or even write them down for later study, later today. So let's get going. First, Eliphaz speaks. Here's a summary of his counsel. Look with me at chapter 4, verse 7. Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? And then, chapter 15, verse 14. What is man that he could be pure? Or he who is born of a woman that he can be righteous? And then, in chapter 22, verses 5 through 11, Eliphaz finally cuts to the chase and tears Job down and calls him evil, a liar, merciless, and selfish. Eliphaz believes that this is God's world, and that it's a moral world governed sovereignly by a moral God. That is true. But according to Eliphaz, Job has in some way, shape, or form acted immorally, and he is reaping what he has sown. Now, Eliphaz is partially right in his understanding of who God is in the world, but he is also completely wrong. He misunderstands God and Job's suffering. Yes, Job is not a perfect man, yet he is called one who is blameless, upright, and righteous by God himself. And so Eliphaz's counsel falls short, and Job's limping continues. Second, Bildad speaks. He steps up. Now here's a snapshot of his counsel Chapter 8, verse 3, does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert the right? He then exhorts Job in chapter 18, verse 2, to be more logical, sensible about his suffering. Then Bildad repeats something that Eliphaz says in chapter 25, verse 4. How then can man be in the right before God? How can he, be, who was born of woman, be pure? Now, Bildad's a theologian. He's got his doctrine in place. He's faithful. He loves justice. He knows the ancient writings. He is a by-the-law, by-the-book type of dude. He believes rightly that God is mighty and that he is just. But Bildad is so close, yet so far, because his high view of God fails to meet the all-time low of Job's experience. His theology is out of touch 
with real suffering of injustice. And so Job limps on. Third, Zophar speaks up. Here's a snapshot of his counsel. First, he rebukes Job. Chapter 11, verse 2. Should a multitude of words go unanswered and a man full of talk be judged, right? He then calls Job to repent. In chapter 11, verses 13 through 14. If you prepare your heart, Job, stretch out your hand toward God, Job. If iniquity is in your hand, Job, put it far away and let not injustice dwell in your tents. And then in chapter 20, verse 27, Zophar finally says, the heavens will reveal your iniquity and the earth will rise up against you. Zophar is a real piece of work. Uh, he, would, he would be the one to get the least likely to be a pastoral counselor award. So in short, he is saying, hey, Job, you're suffering, so stop the, stop the talking and just repent already. Get it together, man. Don't you know that God would be fair and bless you and fill you with peace if you would just repent? The suffering will eventually stop. Come on, Job. Zophar falls short. And so Job continues to limp along the path of faith with his friends. And then fourth, Elihu, who is not called the friend of Job, he runs into the whirlwind and adds to the chaos, burning with anger. He rebukes Job and his friends for the way that they are speaking in chapter 32, verses 1 through 5. And then he tries to bolster Job's theology by making four declarations about God in the midst of his suffering. He declares, God is great, Job, chapter 33. God is just, Job, chapter 34. God is caring, Job, chapter 35. God is powerful, Job. Chapter 36 to 37, it's all true. Those are all true things. But they fall short of Job's situation. Elihu is a fascinating character. He is, as one pastor says, like a young preacher, first out of seminary, who hasn't lived long enough to be cynical, but also hasn't heard enough to be quiet. His doctrine is on point, but he lacks the nuance of experience. And so Job continues to limp with his big-mouthed, small-minded friends, and God is completely silent. In the midst of all of this, though, Job is not. Though Job, like his friends, doesn't have a divine insight into God's purposes in that heavenly courtroom back in chapter 1 and 2, he does have words for his friends and words for God. And in response to all of this he wrestles with his friend's words. And even more, he wrestles with God's character, plan, and purposes. He wrestles with God's perceived anger against him. We see this in chapter 6, verse 4. For the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. He wrestles with God's absence in chapter 13, verses 24. Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? He wrestles with loss of hope. 14, verse 19. In speaking about himself and God, he says, the waters wear away the stones, the torrents wash away the soil of the earth. So you destroy the hope of man. He wrestles with the cruel darkness that has come upon him. Chapter 19, verse 8. Job shouts, he that is God has walled up my way so that I cannot pass. And he has set darkness upon my path. 
Then in chapter 30, verse 21, he says, God has turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, God persecutes me. Brothers and sisters, this is real. These are real words, real emotions. These are words spoken by a believer in God who is wrestling and who is limping. We need to remember that. But in all of this, in the midst of doubt and uncertainty, in the dark silence, in the midst of misguided counsel from his friends, Job continues down the path of faith. And we see this over and over again. He boldly makes appeals for his own character and faith throughout this whole section. And he holds fast to the truth. He, full, he holds fast to the truth that according to 16, chapter 16, verse 19, that he has a witness who is in heaven who testifies for him from on high. And then he powerfully rejoices in the midst of pain that his Redeemer lives in chapter, chapter 19. Go home and read that chapter later today. It's incredible. He declares in that chapter, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Job is an example of steadfast faith in the midst of doubt and suffering. He is an example of one who continues to look for the presence and redemption and voice of God as he limps through doubt and darkness. Well, there are so many lessons to be taken from these chapters, so many lessons. But here are three, three from Job's conversations in the midst of suffering. Here are three for our church. The first lesson is this. We learn here that there is an appropriate way, there's a correct way to go to God with doubt, with uncertainty, with angst and anger, with questions and with struggles. We live in the dissonance of seasons of questioning, seasons of joy, and seasons of pain. And God wants us, like Job has, to come to him in all of those seasons and to continue to look at him and to him by faith as redeemer and to trust that his shoulder is soft enough to cry on and that his chest is strong enough and broad enough to beat on. The second lesson we learn is that we are to weep with those who weep and limp with those who limp. We have all suffered in small ways or big ways. Bouts of depression, frequent unexplainable emotional mornings, illness, work and family struggles. Or maybe, maybe you're struggling with, with loss, chronic illness or cancer or something else truth is we have all experienced suffering. But God has a purpose for it. As we see in these chapters, 
one being that we learn through suffering how to better help and sit and lament and limp with others around us. It was good and right for Job's friends to come to him, to sit with him, to weep with him, but it was when they opened their mouths that they added insult to injury. So may these conversations that we've read teach us to sit with those who are suffering, to let our words be few, and to weep with those who weep. The German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book Life Together calls this a ministry of listening and a ministry of burden-bearing. As a fellowship of saints and sufferers here at EBC, let's learn to sit in the darkness with those who are suffering, not attempting to fix, but attempting to listen and gently bear burdens. Let's, as a church, be aware of sufferers around us. Let's, as a church, be quick to listen, quick to weep, and quick to limp with one another. The third lesson we learn from these conversations is that we are a fellowship of counselors. Uh, Just as everyone in this room is a theologian, a good one or a bad one, everyone in this room is also a counselor to one degree or another, a good one or a bad one. We are always counseling with our words and with our lives. The question is, how are you doing it? And what are you saying in your counseling? What are you not saying in your counseling? It's interesting that Job's friends come with good intentions of comforting and counseling Job. However, their words are of no comfort. They're they're unsafe. He calls them miserable comforters in chapter 16, verse 2. Why? Because of their words. Their quick fix explanations for, their suffer, for his suffering, their misjudgment of his situation, their theological antics, their failure to truly understand God, his purpose, his character. Because of their lack of wisdom, their incessant declarations of law without grace, and their statements of truth about God without mercy. Brothers and sisters, there is a time to weep and a time to listen and a time to speak words of counsel to those who are hurting. Let's be a church that shares words of comfort and let our words be few to those who are suffering. But when we do share, let's not share our thoughts, but God's. Let's open Job's lament in chapter 3. Let's go to Psalm 31, 46, 71, 88, 121. Or you can go to the New Testament and open Romans 8 or 2 Corinthians 1 and then pray those words over the person who is hurting. If you need counseling resources, if you're in a situation and you're in over your head, please reach out to the church office. We would love to get those to you. Additionally, there is also a time and place for deep biblical counseling or deep therapeutic counseling. There is no shame in that. No shame at all. It is okay to need help. It's okay. And so if you're in need, come find a pastor after the service. We would love nothing more than to get you connected. Well, these are three lessons. 
Just three lessons that we see in this passage that I pray that our church would practice and grow in by God's grace and with the Lord's help. Well, we should note once again that in all of these conversations, in all of these chapters, chapters 4 through 37, God is silent. And the absence of his voice is haunting, so haunting. And returning to that image of the stormy path that we've been on this morning, Job is lamenting and limping along. Yes, looking to God with trust, but he is questioning God. He is still asking why. He's still saying, I don't know, with all of these things. And like his friends in the storm, he is unable to see God and his purposes clearly. Suffering has a way of doing that, right? But in the storm, in the whirlwind that Job is in, and from out of the whirlwind, God finally speaks. He finally speaks. And that leads us to point three. In the whirlwind of suffering, we learn to listen to and truly see God. Here in these chapters, God breaks the silence. He breaks the silence. He turns the tables and asks Job a series of questions. Let me run through those. Turn with me to chapter 38. Thirty-eight, verse two. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Verse four. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Verses eight through nine. Who shut in the sea with doors? Who is who? Uh, when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band? Verse 12, have you commanded the morning since your days began? Verse 16, have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Verse 17, have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Verse 31, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Verse 33, do you know the ordinances of heaven? Can you establish their rule on earth? And then in chapter 39, God continues to fire question after question after question to Job about what he has created and what he sustains. And then in chapter 40, verse 2, Look there with me, 40 verse 2, God says, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. In the rest of chapter 40, God challenges Job. He basically says, you, you want to know what's going on, Job? Do you, do you want control over heaven and earth? Then go for it. We'll see how this goes. How does Job respond to God's words? He responds with repentance and humility. He says, chapter 40, verse 4, look there with me. Behold, I am small. How can I answer you? I'm going to be quiet. But the Lord speaks again, and in chapter 41 is where things get really, really interesting. God asks Job a fascinating question there in chapter 41, verse 1. Look there with me. He says, can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? 
God then goes on to speak a lot about the strength and the power of Leviathan, but also about Job's lack of strength and power over him. And in God's finale in verse 34, he says that on earth there is none like Leviathan, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is the, catch this, king over the sons of pride. Well, what do we, what do, we do with this? What do we do with all of these conversations between God and Job? What do, what do we do with these words about Leviathan? This whole chapter, verse, chapter 41, about Leviathan. Job has been fighting and pleading with God to speak to him for so many chapters. And it's incredible. When God speaks, he actually doesn't address any of Job's problems. He doesn't address any of, any of our problems, any of our questions. He doesn't address Job's suffering explicitly. He doesn't answer the wise. Job's wise are our wise. Does that not unsettle you? It should unsettle us just a little bit. God was silent for so long. He speaks, and this is what he has to say. A series of questions about creation, and even more questions about a bunch of animals, including behemoth and leviathan. It just seems to fall short, don't you think? But God's words are beautifully intentional and important. This is, some, this is amazing. There's something we need to see. There is an intentional method to the seeming madness here in God's response. Here are two truths, two things I want to drill down in, spend the rest of our time looking at. The first is this, church, brothers and sisters. These questions from God reveal that the world is his. That he is the sovereign creator and sustainer of all things. And that he rules and reigns supreme. Amen? Amen. But here, God gives Job in the midst of suffering something so much greater than even these declarations. And we need to catch this. He gives him something far more significant than just a handful of answers. God gives Job his presence and his voice. It's amazing. It is, it's incredible. C.S. Lewis says that God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our consciences, but he shouts to us in our pain. Here, God meets Job in his pain as the creator and sustainer of all things, the one who's in control of all things and high above all things. He comes down to Job to speak to Job. That is grace. That is mercy. That's the point. Even if God had answered all of Job's questions and he answered all of our questions, we would have more questions. We would. We would would still be so unsatisfied. And we will be until glory. But here, we need to catch. Here God gives Job and us something so much more satisfying. In this present time, like today, God has given us his word and he has given us himself. That should not be lost on us. 
This is one of the main points of God's response to Job in the whirlwind of suffering. And it is in suffering that we truly learn to, as Job says in chapter 42, verse 5, listen to and truly see God. That's the first truth I wanted to to draw out here. Here is the second. All of this Leviathan language is key to understanding Job. It's key. This whole section, the whole book of Job has actually been building to chapter 41. It's been on a trajectory. It's going in a direction. And we have hit that direction, the end of that direction. Back in chapter 3, verse 8, in Job's lament, he mentioned Leviathan. Did you notice that? It's, it's, a little, it's a little out of, it's kind of out of place. It feels a little out of place. It's like Job is lamenting the day that, that he was born and he talks about Leviathan. Why? And then here we see God go off about Leviathan. Except, except he has a lot more to say about Leviathan, about his power and his strength and about how his home is in the chaos of the raging sea. And God makes it clear in chapter 41 that Job is not strong enough to defeat Leviathan. So what's up with this? Why all the Leviathan talk? Well, in the words of pastor theologian Christopher Ashe, Leviathan is biblical imagery. It is biblical imagery that represents the archenemy of God, the prince of the power of the air, of evil, Satan himself. Church, God is addressing Satan here. The same Satan who roams the earth seeking for someone to devour. And so do you see what's happening? Here, God is addressing the problem that we have. The problem of evil. The problem of suffering. The problem of a life that includes both just and unjust suffering. He is addressing over all this. Most importantly, Satan himself. And God is claiming here in this chapter, chapter 41, that he is greater. That Leviathan is only a creature, as he said in uh, chapter 41, verse 33. And that he is under God's sovereign control. That he has him by the tail. And that he alone can and will defeat him. This truth is is picked back up in Psalm 74. I love this. Psalm 74, verses 12 through 14. This is what the psalmist writes. Yet God, my king, is from old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the head of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. This is the core message of chapter 41. This is what the book of Job has been building toward. God's victory and final word over evil, sin, death, suffering, and pain. Isn't that good news for Job? It's good news for us as saints and sufferers. And here is the dot to dot to the gospel. This truth of God's control and victory over evil put forth in these chapters connects back to Genesis 3, verse 15, where we read what's called the Proto-Euangelion, the first good news, the first gospel, right there in chapter 3, verse 15, where we read that the serpent, Leviathan, 
same imagery, same person, that that Leviathan will be crushed by a seed, by a son. And who is that seed? Who is that son? It's Jesus. Amen. See, these chapters in in Job look back to the truth of Genesis 3.15, but also point forward to the work of Christ that we see in the Gospels, precisely his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And it is because of the gospel work of Jesus, the work of the suffering servant who endured unthinkable, undeserved suffering for sinners that Paul can say in Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He, catch this, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The rulers and authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil, as Paul Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, have all been obliterated in the cross of Christ. Lamenting and limping Job looked forward to Jesus by faith. But we, as lamenting and limping Christians today, as the church today, live in the glorious light of Christ's triumph over evil in the gospel. And that is good news for us. That is the best news for us. But the story isn't over yet. We still live. Look at the world around us. Look at the lives in this room. We still live with the presence of sin, of suffering, of death. Though its power has been broken, we still live with its presence. And so we await the day with faith and hope when Christ returns and the truth of Revelation 12. The truth of Revelation 12, that passage that Christy read earlier, another passage that connects to this section of Job comes to fruition when the serpent, Leviathan, the dragon, Satan himself, is fully and finally thrown down and drowned in the blood of the Lamb. If you are here today and you do not know Jesus, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, if you have not repented and believed in Jesus, then then you're on the wrong side of that battle today, and you will be on the last day. So let me make an appeal to you to place your faith and trust in Jesus, the one who came to this earth, who lived a sinless life, and then went to the cross on your behalf. Turn to him today. Repent and believe on him today. If you have questions, I'll be standing in the back after the service. I would love to talk more with you. The pastors here, people around you would love to talk with you more about the gospel and Christ's victory over sin and death 
and evil. Well, all of this truth, all, all of the truth that we, that we just looked at in these chapters, particularly God's words here in these final chapters and words, really transform the way that we think about suffering in this life. Certainly helps us understand a little better the book of Job. It reforms the way that we think about God's sovereign purposes in and through permitting suffering in our lives. And it gives us hope that one day all suffering will end. And because of Jesus, because of his work, we will see God. In closing, if you are a Christian, because of God's word for us and to us today in the whirlwind of this life, we can rest in the truth. We can rest in this truth that though suffering and Satan may have a word in our life today, it does not speak the final word. It will not speak the final word. Jesus does. So no matter what comes in this life, undeserved suffering or not, we can go to Jesus, even now, with all of our wives, with all of the I don't knows, we can trust that he is standing between us and Leviathan, and we are safe in his presence yesterday, today, tomorrow, and every tomorrow after that. And because of that present hope, we can say along with Job in the suffering of this life, chapter 42, verses 1 through 5. You can read those, look those with me. Look at the, those verses with me. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your victory over sin and death through the cross of Jesus. And we look forward to the day when our own faith gives way to sight. We ask that you would increase our faith today. Help us this side of glory and cause us to look to you, to trust you even in the midst of darkness. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. Amen.